Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along, check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax, and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who is regretting the fact he didn't do his nil-by-mouth joke after <laughs> Kathy Burke talked about Perry giving blowjobs. It would have been brilliant. It's Richard Herring! Yo, yo! Ho! Hello! Hello, welcome to Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. Um, I was hanging around uh, with the, uh, the kids uh, from the Belfast Why Don't You Gang. And... Um, <laughs> They call it the That's what they call it. That was the Belfast accent there. <laughs> That's how you do Belfast. Um, well, the show I've uh, sponsored by Beer Fifty Two, I think, uh, and uh, there's a, a young lady I gave a free beer to in the audience. I gave it to you, and then you've passed it over, haven't you? You're driving. Oh, we can have one, mate. Do you live in the countryside? Yeah, you can drive. You can drive. You're allowed to drink out there. It's fine. Uh, what do you think? What, what do you think? It's called partisan. This particular beer, floral. it's quite floral. It's nice. Yeah, good. That's that. that. So, so go and to the website. <laughs> I get five, five pounds for every time anyone signs up. Hardly worth it, is it? So, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. It's good beer. I'm drunk uh, after one beer. I'm worried about my drive home. Uh, so uh, let's see who we got here. There's some there's some regulars uh, back. This uh, this lady over here I don't recognise unless you just had your hair done. What's what's your what's your name, madam? Karen. Karen. Yeah, are you from Belfast? No, Glasgow. Uh, Glasgow. So similar, isn't it? So I'm like I'm like <laughs> like Henry Higgins. Uh, what have you? What brings you down to London? Me? Have you come from Glasgow to see this show? No, you moved down here. It's homelessness that's brought you down to to London, like all Scottish people. Am I right? Hey, high five, audience! High, everyone, high five me for that. What? Oh, you come down from Nottingham to see this? That's not impressive, is it? No, I'd do that drive home from a gig. What do you do in Nottingham? You provide gigs for charity. Don't make it look like you're good. <laughs> I provide gigs for charities. Are they charities that support racism and uh, anti-disablism? No. no, no. no. Why well, you get people to walk on fire and broken glass? Then they get d- disabled doing that, and then you raise money. For... <laughs> well, that's very good. Thank you for coming to see the show and uh, keep up your charitable deeds. Better new in it, David, making nuclear bombs. 
doing do good things for people. Uh, anyway, we're going to crack straight on because uh, I'm giddy from the tiredness of having too many children. I'm, I'm compared to the last series. I feel so alive. I can't tell you. Don't have children, or if you have them, just wait till they're four months old before you hang around with them. It's my advice. And talking of having children, uh, my next guest is probably best known as the script associate on three episodes of the Very British Problems TV show based on the Twitter feed, Very British Problems. And sadly, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) He also wrote one full episode himself. Please welcome Adam Kay! (laughs) Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm all right, yeah. Good. Oh, did you like the chairs? We didn't talk enough about the chairs in the in the first episode of the. Well, you weren't filming it, so no, exactly. uh, They're nice chairs, aren't they? They're very, they're very good. They're comfy. Yeah, but they're made.com, so they collapse in two months. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They were going to sponsor us, and everything ruined everything. Uh, Would you like a beer? There's, uh, you can have. I've drunk the Crest one because I love Chris. There's a smoked rye ale. You're going for sweet stout, which I had at home. That's nice. It is a stout-based drink. Nice. I'm going with actively bad. (laughs) (laughs) Do sign up for those beers. (laughs) I I kind of warned the guys that would happen. Uh, So, um... Do you remember much about the very British Problems uh, script associate job you did? I mean, you do quite a lot of script writing, don't you? So it's hard probably to remember... I I do. Yeah, I think it was... I don't think I've got any sort of painful memories of it. No. Sort of same shit, different uh, <laughs> show. Did, uh, you, did you go in to do the work or could you do it from home? I did it from home. Did you? Yeah, that's better, isn't it? Mm. I did that for um, Batteries Not Included. I was basically that job on the show Batteries Not Included, which yep. was hosted by, I think, Phil Jupiter. I worked quite hard on the first one. Right. So, uh, <laughs> the good thing about working from home is you just say the number of days you did on it. Because <laughs> yes. if you go in, it's sort of the, the lie is more obvious. <laughs> Unless any, oh, someone's going to be listening, aren't they? Yes. Very British Problems was excellent. <laughs> it was excellent. It was an excellent. I love the Twitter feed. Uh, anyway, you are a. Um, you are. You've, you've done a lot of different things. You started out, we're going to talk a lot about your fantastic book, This Is Going to Hurt. Uh, uh, but you started out as a medical student and then you left. We'll talk about But well, there that was later. sort of 18 years first. Yes. And then I was a medical okay. student. <laughs> but you were learning, surely, in those eight. Yes, no, I wasn't yeah. just learning medicine for the no, first okay. 18, but then I specialised <laughs> okay. to just learning about medicine. So, the, you, But then you were the, probably the worst thing on earth. You were a medical student who did comedy reviews. Oh, it was sort of one of the rules yeah. you had to do it. It's, yeah. there, it's this tradition that medical students do these shit-bad sort of end-of-year shows. Yeah. And uh, I sort of... Yeah, that was the first bit of comedy yeah. I really did. But then you were good. No. Okay. Everyone else was worse. <laughs> okay. And that gave me the false confidence to keep going with it a bit. Yeah. So were you doing comedy all the way through when you were, when you were training as a doctor? You kind of had time for that. The, what, yeah, books. junior doctors are famously free time yeah. light. <laughs> uh, uh, so I did, I did uh, bits and bobs. I sort of had a sort of upside-down comedy sort of, sort of career yeah. whereby I hadn't really done any gigs and then I recorded one song that became sort of absurdly downloaded sort right. of in the early the proto youtube so it was days. The, un- the going underground yeah the sort of sweary tirade about uh the tube that used the word cunt so it was uh, <laughs> so it was popular yes and uh which which meant that when i wanted to do gigs there was sort of an audience of people who would be like oh maybe if i come to that he'll do that song yeah uh it was my creep <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's yeah, in many ways it's still online, of course, if you want to, as, all, as everything is. You can't eradicate yourself from the internet, even if you want to do, but it's very good. Well, it's quite, you know, it's sort of anti the uh, underground drivers going on strike. You're angry, I guess, because, as you say in your book, you, people think that junior doctors are making lots of money and you weren't really earning very much money, and you were maybe angry with the tube drivers for striking. When they I were think doctors, doctors aren't poor. They no. get a decent uh, yearly and monthly salary. It's just the fact you have to work 35 million hours yeah. to, to get that. So there, was, there was one point where I uh, was putting the book together where I totted up. 
as an old rotor. I was like, fuck, it was a 97-hour week. And, uh, and I divided it uh, by the money I was getting, and it turns out the parking meter outside the hospital was earning slightly more than me. <laughs> it was a good parking meter, that one, though. That was, uh, was excellent. It did its job excellently. Um, well, let's, well, let's, well, we'll talk about becoming a doctor. This, this book is uh, very interesting, because you obviously kept a diary during your time as a junior doctor, which was very fortunately... I guess. Because uh, in retrospect, it was yeah. a great financial decision. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but it's... Because you had, to keep a, you had to keep records of what had happened in the day anyway, and then you would add... Yeah, they're very keen that uh, yeah. if you see the doctor, they, there's, you know... <laughs> you can't there's a permanent record of what yeah. happened. I think a, a guy in came in. my case, in. I was doing operations and delivering babies. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they do, they, you have to do that. Yeah. And then also uh, that you're encouraged uh, to keep... You have to do a log, like, you know, so at the end of your year for your MOT, when you check, you can progress up. Yeah, you know, I did 320 caesareans or whatever. And also, if anything bad happens, you have to, you know, write about that so you can reflect and learn. I also, I guess the frustrated writer of me, went up to my on-call room and wrote down all the weird shit that happened to me. Yeah. Like a medical Anne Frank. <laughs> with worse accommodation. <laughs> But they are, they're very, you know, they're very good stories. So it's quite, because it's the little vignettes, so it's a diary, they're little, often just like it's a little jokey thing where someone's come in and not understood how to put a condom on, for example, or, you know, there's... Yes, I'm not short of revolting stories, yeah. if that's what we're going well, for. But all, you know, well, I've got a few friends who are doctors, and they usually have a story or two about someone coming in with their intestines in a bag or that sort of thing. But you have a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I guess I overrepresented the uh, the sort of objects in orifices and things. Yeah. I, there were a lot of patients I was, who I didn't talk about, and it was sort of you know I had a headache or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think my that's editor for, was very pleased. That's for that, book two. That's book two. The turnips <laughs> from the tip that I left left out. Um, uh, but yeah, so it's I wanted it to be. I put it together. It sort of sat in my filing cabinet for, for years and years yeah. and years, sort of just I'd occasionally refer to it if I'd forgotten the details of a particularly horrendous story for upsetting people at a dinner party. But uh, it sort of sat there. And then there was this junior doctor crisis a couple of years ago. Yeah. And the government were having this very loud voice on across the media that doctors were striking because they were being greedy because it was about money and they wanted more money. And uh, the truth of it was that it was about um, working conditions, which basically means patient safety, which is the best interest of the patient, which is the only thing doctors really care about. And doctors couldn't get their side of the story across because, you know, they're at work the whole time being doctors. And, uh, and so I thought maybe if I sort of jotted all the stuff down and showed what it's like day to day, because we don't know what other people's jobs actually involve, we've got a bit of an idea, but yeah. if you actually knew the ins and outs of it, the number of hours, the fact that you miss, you know, You'll miss you know, your best mate's wedding and you'll miss christenings. Actually, that's a bad example. Everyone hates christenings. But you'll, you know, you'll, you'll miss all these things. You'll barely ever see your... You well, know, yeah, your... but like thing, well, you're saying that doctors rearrange their weddings because of their schedules and there's, yeah. a, there's a bit where you go, you go, you've got a holiday booked and then you find out you, you've got to work in the middle week of the holiday. So yeah, rotors are constantly changing. constantly changing. And a friend of mine, uh, on the morning of her own wedding, the only way she could get the, uh, the timetable to work is that if she did morning clinic in full wedding hair and makeup. <laughs> and it sounds absolutely yeah. absurd. Um, but, you know, you don't have any, there's no slack in the system. Yeah. There's no slack in the system to change that. There's no slack in the system if someone starts bleeding out when you're meant to be going home. So... You technically have a choice if you go home or help the person who's, who's in the middle of dying. Um, but if that was ever a choice for you, you'd never have gone to medical school course, yeah. in the first place. So you're constantly late from work. You're three hours late, day after day after day. And then your friends stop inviting you out to things because you're the guy who always does that. So it's, it's sort of it's destructive in lots of interesting ways, which is, you know... you. you you sign up for that, you, you, know, you get it's not going to be an easy job, um, which is fine. But when your employers are going on the Today programme and saying, oh, it's so lazy, that's, that's <laughs> when it's sort of great. Well, it, yeah, it's... <laughs> Does it feel like a deliberate act to run down the NHS? You know, often people are saying this, that that they're trying to privatise the NHS so that they're trying to run it down to make people turn against it? We hear a lot of conspiracy theories about all sorts of things. 
and there's usually a rational explanation for everything. I can't think of the rational explanation for what they're doing to the NHS other than a slow, systematic starvation of funds convincing the public that it's no longer fit for purpose, so one day they can flog it off in a jumble sale to the highest bidder. Yeah. Depressingly. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, because I, you know, I remember even... Well, I mean, it should still be this case, but 20 or 30 years ago there would be no question, no, no one would question the NHS or the validity of the NHS. You know, the Tories wouldn't dare really talk it down at all. And now, it's, now it seems that it's, you know, it, people are chipping away at it in the way they are at lots of things. Yes, yeah, it's, it's slowly being privatised yeah. um, underneath our noses. And we keep hearing these things, all these problems with it. Health tourism. Health tourism is only responsible for a fraction of 1% of the overall budget of the NHS. If you got rid of every person from another country... You know, using the NHS resources would make fuck all difference to the uh, to, to the function of the NHS. We hear that the population's getting older. It's such an old population now. You know, it wasn't what the NHS was designed for in you know 1948, which is true. However, I left the NHS you know eight years ago, and it was working much, much better than it is now. The, the life expectancy difference in the last eight years has gone up by a fortnight or something. That's not a reason. <laughs> there are lots of expensive drugs, but the expensive drugs already existed ten years ago. The only variable, the only thing that's actually changed is the amount of money going in. And it's disingenuous for anyone to say there's anything else the matter. There's no, there's no problem at the heart of it. There's no cancer underneath it. It just doesn't have enough money. Historically, sorry, this is very boring, but historically <laughs> the NHS, you didn't say no. Um, uh, historically, <laughs> I did, I just very under my breath. it. Um, <laughs> historically, you know, it, it's, more, it's more expensive year on year to, to, to run the NHS. Historically, Every year, it would increase by 4% in real terms. In the last decade, it's increased by 1% total. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think the, the, the book's um, amazing philosophy because, A, it gives you that, that view into what... I mean, you know, you know that people work hard in the NHS, but then you see that and go, OK, yeah. Uh, there's lots of very funny stories. There's lots of... I mean, I'm quite a squeamish person. Uh, there's a lot of quite nasty stuff in there. I mean, just that's... You know, funny, nasty, and, then and it's nasty, nasty. And then there's a lot of really horrible, you know, tragic. And... Did you like the degloving story? Well, uh, you know, I was actually surprised by the. I, I wrote a book about penises, and I read about penises for about two or three years, and you've come up with something that I, I never heard of before which is a guy i mean it's so, this is I, it's so horrific so de, de, degloving yeah. is the term generally applied to the hands where like if a motorcyclist flies off their bike and their hands drag along the ground and you know say what you see degloving and this was a, a gentleman who was aged 18 and had just had his a-level results three c's and um was <laughs> celebrating by uh dancing on the roof of a bus shelter uh, I think he'd been drinking before, and then decided to get back to ground level using a neighbouring lamppost. It was like a fireman's pole, but he'd misjudged the texture of the lamppost, and uh, it was more of a gritty slump to the ground than he'd imagined it would be, and uh, presented uh, to me when I worked in a urology department, a penis department, um, with a degloved penis. It's worse when it's said out loud than when you read it. I have to say, it it's, was, actually, it was it's actually worse when you see it. <laughs> I'd imagine it was like, the worst of all, I think, is probably when it, happens, it happens to, to you. you. <laughs> it's cheese grated off your body, and it was—it's like a couple of inches of urethra coated with, I'm going to say, like a, a thin layer of bloody pulp, like a last remnant of spaghetti stuck at the bottom of a bowl by some tomato sauce and he and he he asked he asked if the the penis could be re-gloved and the consultant explained that the glove was spread evenly up eight foot of lamppost in Fulham it's a very tragic story and so the well it, it, it doesn't repair there's no proper repair for that is there i mean i've never uh, no you're thinking of like octopuses that yeah. regenerate themselves <laughs> well most uh, things grow back a ham hand grows back doesn't it of course it does uh, but no i he'll be able to do the do you know those boxes of wine with the tap uh i think they'd put one of those in for pissing but uh for the other penis function i think that's pretty much game over i mean so that's you know that's a very tragic well, it's interesting this book because i think you 
you had to stop being a doctor because you were too nice and too too affected by everything. But you also have this, you know, I think you have to have as a doctor when the things you witness, you have to have this sense of humour that is is quite brutal, right? You need to, to survive. If you take everything to heart that, that happens, because by the nature of illness, more bad things happen than good. If you take everything to heart, you drive yourself mad, and so you look for the, the glimmers of light amongst the dark, and that's why the book is predominantly funny, because that's yes. the stuff that I wrote down to, to stay sane. But um, you have to have also, I guess, an emotional exoskeleton, so that stuff can bounce off you. And... I, mine wasn't strong enough. Mine had a limit. I worked on uh, labour wards um, where, you know, you're delivering babies, you end up with uh, more patients than you start with, uh, which is a, a very good uh, batting average for <laughs> any aspect of, uh, of medicine. And, and all, you, all you want to end up with is a healthy mum and a healthy baby. And when you end up with neither of those things and you're the most senior person working there and even though it's not your fault because no one else could have done anything differently when you're the person left you know holding the ball and you you couldn't sort it out even though that's part of the job just turns out that the 18 year old me who you know turned up to medical school you know wasn't you know wasn't able to to deal with it no well i'm not, I'm not surprised i mean it's a, it, that is near the end of the book and obviously explains oh sorry you, i've spoiled yeah, the ruin ending it, ruin the end uh, but you watched titanic and you knew what happened there <laughs> but you know it's it, it that's where it hits home but there's lots of things where you talk there's a bit where you're talking about a patient that you really liked and then you want to go to a funeral when she dies you know of old age more or less really nothing no not anything that's your fault and um and the, you're not, you know, you're not supposed to go to the funeral because of, of keeping that distance, that emotional distance. It's, and it's a survival, t- an unhelpful, I think, survival tactic that's been taught from doctor to doctor to doctor and is perpetuated. I think we should be talking about our bad days at work, mm-hmm. um, but doctors, it's just, you know, come on, you know, mustn't let it get you down. Just yeah. accept that this happens. But. Um, yeah, not everyone can just can well, just get I, on with it. I can't it. imagine. You know, there's, there's things you talk about, and, we, it, 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 and honestly, it is a, as well as it being a political book and a, and having these serious moments. It's a very, very laugh out loud funny book, and like n- all the way through. It's it's really it, that's why it works as a book because there's so many different aspects to it. But uh, you know, the things that you're talking about as as a, a doctor, you know, with you know miscarriages and the things you have to do after someone's miscarriage that you, I would never have thought of. And, you know, as a parent, it's, my mind is full of all these terrible things. You know, as when, you're, when your wife's pregnant, you're thinking of all the worst that could happen. But yeah. you don't even think of, the, you of don't, how bad that is. You don't... Why, why would you? you don't, no. no one thinks in detail about what someone else's job is, and, uh, you know, not every stalk has a, has a happy landing, as it were. And, you know, when, when people do have stillbirth someone does have to you know take tissue samples and that was just i for the first dozen or so times i literally couldn't look because i was putting a you know a scalpel into a into a you know a dead baby the size of a baby that should have been alive just it's it's really it's really tricky and you apply to medical school because for for, for shit reasons because you know it's because your parents are doctors, which is uh, the case with me, or you quite like Holby or something like that. <laughs> uh, but you, or you, you want to cure cancer, which is fine, but that's not what doctors do. That's scientists. Um, <laughs> so you've, you've applied for one of three faulty reasons. And everyone, you know, if your kids said they were going to be doctors, you sort of generally... People are very encouraging. Oh, amazing medical school, great, you know, vocation, doing a, a good thing. And it is an amazing job. But they don't check that... They don't even check you're going to be okay with the sight of blood, no. let alone how you're actually going to deal with, you know, <laughs> death and disease and breaking bad news and, um, from, from day one. Yeah. And I, and I also think that, obviously, like, a hospital is a very interesting place in terms of understanding life, right? Because you sort of see... That we see the, it's weird that people are born and die in the same place. That's kind of a weird thing anyway. But you see the reality of birth. You see the reality of death. Which again, you talk about your first death that you encounter. And it's, you know, you're kind of... A, I think you, you again, you imagine your own death and hoping, oh, this will be peaceful and I'll slip away. And, and that's not really... I mean, occasionally death is it, like that, it, but it's it not... It can be. Uh, the, uh, the first death that I was um, witness to as a, as a doctor was more like a sort of 
avant-garde episode of Changing Rooms where a man was redecorating an entire ward with blood out of his mouth. I was just like, oh, God, what do you do with that? <laughs> Has he got a stopcock? <laughs> Float some basil in it and call it gazpacho. I mean, it's, very, uh, it's not... Um, it was, it was, and I'm making light of it because that's my natural go-to thing from being a doctor. But, um, you know, the, uh, my registrar, the senior doctor who was above me at the time, I was very junior, was trying to put this ghastly contraption down this man's throat to, to sort of compress the blood vessels that were bleeding, which, which didn't work. And it was just, you know, we were covered in, in blood head to toe. And it was just like, um, he said to me, you know, do you want to get a cigarette? And I was like... Yeah, and, uh, and I'd never smoked before, but it, was, it seemed to be the, the only possible answer of what to do after that. Yeah, because, you know, you think your own death will be a... Even if you're an atheist, think you'll be a spiritual or holy experience, but obviously, you know, a lot of times it goes out in this awful... Yeah, no... Um... Well, it's the, the human body's... You know, as a doctor, you're seeing the human body malfunction and decay, which, you know, is kind of a weird yep. thing. So you see birth, you see death, and you worked, like, in sexual health as well, didn't you? And, and... I did, yes. And so you see all that side of life. Lunatics, well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you got, I think you get an idea. When I, I, I have occasionally contracted uh, sexually transmitted diseases. I'm sure you'll be really? surprised to hear, as a comedian, that that's happened to me. I don't know, I don't know how it's happened. <laughs> Uh, luckily, not for a while, or unluckily, I can't work out which. But um, but I was, you know, I was once in a relationship with someone I liked, and I, but I had, I, you know, I had sex with someone else, and then I thought I'd, I got a sexually transmitted disease, and I went in, and I was like, really, like, oh my god, you know, I'm really, I'm really upset because I love this person and I've, I've wrecked it. And the doctor who was dealing with like treated me like I was the most romantic person they'd ever met. Okay, <laughs> I can't, you know, it's like <laughs> so you see this side of life, so you get. Do you think it's a clouded vision or do you think it's like the real vision that everyone's sort of fucking each other and pretending they're not? Or do you think you just see the, the bad people you, like me? You become very good at uh, poker. Yeah. You just have whatever your feet are doing below the surface, your face is just, just mask-like. You know, I had an 80-year-old man uh, telling me about this, you know, colossal butt plug he was using called the Arse Master. <laughs> and you just have to smile and say... And, what size of arse master? <laughs> and jot it down and then, I mean, and then write it down and print it. Uh, <laughs> but you sort of, you, you, you get good poker face for, the, for the, the crazy stuff people do, but also the sort of um, idiocy, like also in, in Sexual Health, had a, a girl wanting a morning after pill and, and she told me that uh, she slept with three guys the night before and wondered if one pill would be enough. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> the audience didn't seem sure. <laughs> Good to know for the future. Uh, yeah, well, and, and uh, yeah, it is. There's, a, there's the, the thing, the Eiffel syndrome. That you... I fell, yes. Yeah. Uh, I was in the tower. It's, uh, patients say this a lot. I fell, doctor, I fell. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but you're... you're we know that you didn't. Why, who, why are you lying to the person who's the expert, who knows that you... There was one time, I think this made it into the book, a lot of stuff got cut by me, I just did, because it was called, uh, she would say, it's tonally adrift, uh, which means too straight-up repulsive. Um, I think this was in, it was the only uh, convincing story a patient had, had told me, which was um, about some sort of awkward sofa sitting down in a remote control. And I was like... Could have, could have happened, and then um, <laughs> we took him to theatre and sort of and uh, and dragged it out, and he had a condom on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> that could be just to protect it from sofa dust and stuff. <laughs> keeps... Yes, you're very charitable. It keeps your knobs clean. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but so there's all there's there's those kind of fun the, the idiocy of the, I mean it's sort of weird that people feel embarrassed to tell doctors the truth about that stuff, isn't it? No, no? I think I'd probably lie as well. Yeah, <laughs> it actually came down to it. <laughs> also, I probably know the doctor, which makes it worse. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, this is something, well, you know, I've been to hospital a bit with my uh, births and kids having to go to hospital for various things. And you're annoyed about this because you worked at a hospital. But that, that there's parking fees at hospital. I mean, you sort of alluded to it with the parking meter. But it sort of seems crazy to me that, there's a, that they try to make money on the parking and I'm a bit repulsive they try to make money on the parking. Yeah, um... Something that a lot of people don't realise about junior doctors is uh, you're moved around the country every six months or year. And the country's divided up into what's called deaneries, and you're sort of randomly sort of moved around these deaneries, which makes sense. You work in big hospitals and small hospitals, one of the ones that are expert in this and that. And um, this would make sense perfectly, were it not for the size of the deaneries. For example, one was called Scotland. <laughs> it's very difficult to buy a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. So you're constantly moving around. So you've got these endless commutes, sometimes up to... My longest was, like, almost two hours. And so sometimes you, you have to drive. I mean, it's not eco-great, but sometimes you have to drive. And there was, there was one place where um, it was £3 an hour in the, in the car park, which is just insane. It's a huge cost. You, can't, you don't have a huge amount of expendable income as a junior doctor. But I was working on labour board and you get an exemption if you're a patient and you're in labour. And uh, so I, I found that if I buttered up the head midwife, I could get these, these chitties and, um, and put, it, uh, put them in the, uh, you know, on the dashboard and then I'd get, uh, I'd get free parking. And then eventually, a couple of months in, I got back to my car and it had a, uh, a clamp on it and it had the, you know, the, the thing under the windscreen wiper saying you know, who I had to phone and pay what. And the guy had written, long fucking labour, pal. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you see, only it's bad for the doctors, but it's also like if you're rushing to hospital because your child's ill or your partner's ill, or yeah. and then you're made to pay for... They give you the, in my local hospital, they give you the first 20 minutes for free. So just, you know, hope they die quickly and then I can yeah. get back to there. Yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Um, if I... If I believed that the money raised from this was actually going to the NHS itself, I would say... Fair enough, you know, if it, it means it's a tax, it means we don't have to pay the tax elsewhere. However, I'm pretty fucking certain it's going to these private companies that have the, you know, the, um, they've got the contract to provide the parking and the catering or whatever it is, and probably one of these ones that have gone bust in the last few weeks. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's criminal. Scotland can make it uh, free parking, free prescriptions. Wales can as well, uh, but England can't. But I'd be lying if I thought that was the biggest problem the NHS was, was facing or where the money should be spent. Fair enough. Yes, fair enough. But it's annoying for me. It is. And, and well, but you talk about you also talk about the difference in the last few years. The difference between the I had we had our two kids in the same hospital, the Chelsea and Westminster, which is a nice hospital. They film uh, sliding doors, the lift scene in there. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the difference was, like, incredible. And it might just have been we were lucky the first time there weren't many kids being born, and the second time there were lots of kids being born. But my son, I nearly had to deliver my son myself. There was literally nobody in maternity. And uh, they were trying to put my wife off. My wife said, I think I'm having contractions. They go, no, you're not. We're not. Can you check? No, we're not going to check. Because they knew if they checked and she was dilated enough, they would have to go downstairs to a maternity ward. To go go to the ward, not go downstairs. Yeah, yeah, no, go, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. go down in the lift that they film sliding doors in. And uh, they, uh, and when we got to the, she was basically crowning, so they rushed, they rushed her into the lift, and then we couldn't go down in the lift that they film sliding doors in because it was further up the corridor, if I'm honest. And uh, also, they couldn't, there was only one midwife and they couldn't have a go in the lift in case she had the baby in the lift, so we had to wait. So it was like this really weird... But the first time we had, like, about four or five hours in the delivery room after the baby was born to, you know... And then this one, we basically had it in a corridor. And then we whisked to another room and said, we could stay in here for two hours. And then they said, oh, we need this room. And then we had to go back up to the upstairs. So mm. it could have been that we just had a bad luck the second time. Yeah, but, it, but, but, but also, it, those... it probably would have been fine because you were in a hospital. Well, but there was no one there. Literally, there was no one there. I was walking around the corridors. And I, I knew, and I was, you know, no one thinks how bad it is for the man. And that's what... Uh, <laughs> my wife had a bed. Though. We were there for two days. She had a bed. <laughs> I was sitting I... in a chair. It wasn't that from made. It was like, at the moment, at least put comfortable chairs in there that men can try and sleep on. And um, I once got emergency call to a room where, um, you know, all the sirens went off and I rushed in and uh, 
uh, one of the husbands had been dicking around on the birthday uh, on the birthing ball had fallen backwards and smacked his head open. <laughs> so, so watch it. Um, I, well, I, I was... can't I can't say which hospitals I, I worked in for legal reasons uh, because it's sort of in case people are identifiable. So they've all been anonymized in the book. I was at a party um, once and. Uh, and uh, I was sort of doing that thing where you sort of recognise someone. Uh, and, uh, and eventually I said, where do, where do I know you from? And I said, well, we were at school together, at the university. And he sort of was like, actually, I'm, uh, I'm on television, so that's probably from, from there. I was like, no, it's definitely not, uh, <laughs> definitely not that. Danny Wallace. Um, and uh, I had to anonymise him for the, for the book as well. Why am I saying this? Uh, and... Uh, it turns out I uh, delivered his wife's uh, baby, so I'd seen the inside of his wife. <laughs> and uh, when we worked this out, he was sort of slightly horrified. Um, uh, it was a caesarean, so it was like the, you know, the proper inside, not just the <laughs> inside. inside. Um, and then, uh, sort of, and uh, then it transpired in the conversation that I was gay, and he felt a bit better about it, as yeah. if that's how I get my kicks. <laughs> Uh, you know, he said, oh, at least you didn't see her vagina. I was like, well, I did, but from the inside. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, yeah, I should ask you, seeing you said, I don't think I want to ask this question, but you did say there's things that your, your editor found were too distasteful to go into the book. What the fuck were they? <laughs> um... I've got a bit more clout with the publisher than I did before it was published. Now it's, uh, now it's sold relatively well. And so for the paperback, there was like, is there anything you want to amend for it? I was like, yeah, I'm putting in some of these horrible stories. So it was like, there was, there was, there was one guy who, uh, it was his girlfriend's birthday and uh, he wanted to surprise her and so wanted to do a, a, a sort of new twist on that old classic of sort of, sort of, chocolate body paint and that and so he got on the kitchen cable uh sort of painted himself uh achieved an erection uh which is a very small achievement really in the <laughs> in the scheme of things and uh inserted and lit a thin green birthday candle and uh unfortunately the girlfriend didn't get uh, to see this uh imaginative revolting surprise uh, because he dissolved into the excruciating pain of the hot wax dripping down into his bladder uh, presumably when he blew out the candle his wish was that the urology department have some idea about how to remove a stick of wax from a, from a penis why do people do this you alright <laughs> no I'm so squeamish I hate this I really hate this. But it's... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I asked. And there was a similar one, actually. Um, it's thing, things like um, birthdays sort of cause patients to do, like, to insert objects. But like, Christmas is the, is the main big one. Uh, so I've had, like, sort of swollen vulvas from mistletoe contact allergies and... A vaginal burns from a patient sticking a string of lights inside and turning them on. <laughs> Bringing new meaning to the phrase, I put the Christmas lights up myself. <laughs> and, um, but the... Uh, but the, <laughs> but the, the particularly memorable one was a February the 29th. <laughs> Where you know the old-fashioned rule dictates that the uh, that the woman can propose to the man, and this woman decided what she would do is put an engagement ring inside a Kinder Surprise egg, and uh, put the Kinder Surprise vaginally, um, and then her partner would you know discover it and uh, fish it out, and then uh, you know uh, propose. Um, was However, it, wait, was it, can I interject, was it the whole egg with the wrapping on it? Was it just the chocolate or was it just the bit in the middle? It's not David Blaine. You can't get an <laughs> engagement ring into it if it's still in the, you the foil and the chocolate. wrapped it up again. It could have, could have done, yeah. No. It, was, it, was it was just, just, the it was just in the, the yellow plus one I saw at Mucus. Um, so, but what... But this, this egg could somehow 
rotated itself lengthwise uh, inside and no amount of sugling uh, would uh, get the, uh, the golden goose to lay. But um, So they eventually came to, to hospital and she hadn't, neither had she told the partner about it nor me. So I sort of grabbed this thing out with some sponge-holding forceps and, and then she asked me if her partner could open it. So sort of poker-faced it, yeah, sure. Gave him some latex gloves, sandblasting the last trace of romance from this. Uh, and um, she popped the question and he said yes, presumably out of fear. <laughs> See, if it had been me, I'd have thought my wife had found the last crazy croco that I didn't have. <laughs> and I'd be disappointed to find out I had to marry her instead of getting Marilyn Croco. They were the best, right? The crazy crocos. They were... You remember them, mate, don't you? Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> Good. Now I do feel quite sick. Let's, let's move on to talk about something. I'm so squeamish. I think you know it, it's it's a, it, it's a lovely, charming, amazing, interesting book, it, and, and it's done incredibly well, hasn't it? As well, not, not that I need to uh, big it up because you've been in the bestseller list for like 13 weeks or something, haven't you? And I mean, this will go out later. It'll be yeah. let's say 18 by yeah. then. Yeah. And once this has gone out, it'll be back right up to the top, <laughs> mate. You watch, you watch this happen. Uh, so, but do uh, do. Uh, yeah, do buy it, but if you've got a strong stomach and not if you're about to have a child. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you've, 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 I, I actually met you in, well, nearly met you in Edinburgh. We were on a radio show together, so we looked at each other across a, and talked to each other across, across the radio. Nicholas Parsons <laughs> yes, or whatever it was. Whoever it was. <laughs> uh, but you were, doing, you were doing a show about Tom Lehrer as well, which is... I some, was. Yeah, which I, um, I know a little bit about him, but only the, the, the element song and the poisoning pigeons in the park. Yeah, that's but what you, most people yeah. know about him. He's this sort of amazing, creative genius. He did so many things. He was a, a professor of maths, a professor of musical theatre, you know, did the Element Song and so many amazing, wonderful albums, sold millions of records, and in, also invented vodka jelly. <laughs> it's like the definition of a, a polymath. Yes. Um, he... he well, he's, he's old. He's, he's uh, 89 I mean, he's now. Alive, he's still alive, which I'm astonished, because he, well, he, he stopped working. He, I checked Wikipedia yesterday, and he was still alive. At okay. 89, you sort of need to check it more regularly than that, I suspect. Um, but um, So he, went, he was in the army for a couple of years, as was sort of mandatory uh, back then. And uh, uh, alcohol wasn't allowed in, in the mess at all, even in the Christmas party. So he tasked himself with finding ways of secreting alcohol into food. There were ways already, sort of at low concentrations like sherry trifle and rum barbar, port salut uh, but eventually uh, came across vodka jelly as the most efficient delivery method you can, you can check this, it sounds totally made up but <laughs> someone had to invent it and it was him Wow, I like well, there's a, I saw you talk about it in an interview and when Prince Philip Prince Philip was a fan of his um, yeah, so his second album was really filthy and as a result became a big hit in the UK. And uh, he did a, uh, some sort of gala performance where the, the royal family were there and, and you sort of met Philip afterwards. And Philip said, I really like the, uh, the record uh, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. It brings me a lot of pleasure. That's probably the only non-racist thing the man's ever said. Um, and naturally, Tom Lehrer said... Um, uh, what does the Queen think of it? And uh, he said, oh, she thinks it's horrible. She leaves the room when I put it on. That's uh, disappointing. Yeah. Might just have been Prince Philip. You said allegedly when I said, uh, when I talked about Prince Philip being <laughs> racist, as if that's either not provable or, or he's going to sue. <laughs> he might do. Um, no, I didn't say I think I was, I was going You want him paying that £3 a month, that's what you want, <laughs> isn't it? He's, he's a big fan of this uh, the show. So have you, you've done a, have you done a, a show of Tom Lehrer songs? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, so um, I've been a, like, a huge fan of his music since childbirth and uh, l- used to listen to the, you know, the, the cassettes in the, the car on the way to school and things. And he's the father of, of musical comedy and I thought um, I should resuscitate some of the songs. Some needed a bit of... Some haven't aged well or travelled across uh, the ocean that well. So I've hopefully... It, it felt like a, like... Hopefully like a loving restoration 
of a classic car rather than when they remade Alfie with Jude Law in it. Um, but so I'm uh, just sort of buffing up them a bit and, uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, performing yeah. them to a, to a new audience. So I thought this would be great because I had a sort of bit of an existing audience from other things I'd done. And I thought, well, hopefully I can introduce those people to uh, Tom Lehrer. Um, as it turns out, the only people who came along were extremely old people. <laughs> uh, and which was a sort of financial disaster because we were selling out the shows and everyone was a concession. <laughs> and is it true you played Prince Harry's? Uh, I'm not that I want to dwell on the royal family, and we'll get on to Prince Andrew later. But um, <laughs> it's uh, you played Prince Harry's thirtieth birthday party. I did. I'm not not been booked for the wedding yet, but no. I'm checking my uh, email. I got a uh, I got a sort of weird booking. We said, we can't tell you what it is, but a car will pick you up at this, at this time. And uh, I spoke to someone else who'd been booked by the same uh, guy before. I said, what could this be? And, uh, and she said, well, I once, did a, I once got one of these and it was uh, an Elton John party and all the guests were naked. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm not doing this gig. And then he said, oh, I can't really tell you, but it's Prince Harry's 30th. And I was like, okay, what's the Nazi dress code? Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so I, and I, it was... It was it was weird. It was like it was in the throne room of St James's Palace, right? Uh, which is I don't know if you've played it before, but uh, it's quite. A, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not a it's not a big room. There's this like a couple of dozen toffs sat there, and uh, I just did a did a. It was me and Ellie Goulding, so you know, we don't we don't gig a lot together. Um, but um, <laughs> she, she opened, I closed, and. Uh, and I sort of it was it was going fine. They were sort of basically you know. Hooray Henry's, and they just liked hearing swearing, so I did, treated it a bit like a stag do, and just uh, sort of did that. And then I ended with the um, that, that London Underground song we talked about, before, which which generally is is fine. It's a it's sort of fairly fairly bankable way to to close a gig. None of these people were aware of this subterranean network of <laughs> trains under the cover. They were just staring at me, and I was. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I'll ask you an emergency question. It's going to come up at random. Oh, no, it's from late in the book. Shit. Uh, the first one I've seen is, would you like to taste my special porridge? That's, that's my emergency question to you. I make very nice porridge. I think that's what that's about. Yes. <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the magic ingredient? It's um, uh, blueberries. Oh, yeah, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Glad I went for that. Um, uh, right, let me see what we've got. It's quite interesting looking at these later uh, ones that I wrote at the last minute when I had to <laughs> fulfil the Kickstarter pledge. Yeah. Um, we've have, all been on a publishing deadline. Right? <laughs> have you ever met a shepherd? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's sort of... I do these sort of book signing things, and uh, very little time. So uh, I, reckon, I don't. I reckon shepherds probably read a lot of books, don't you? Because they got it's just a lot of sitting around looking at sheep, isn't it? It is. So it is. And a dog. They've subcontracted to dogs a lot of the work, <laughs> uh, which is very. You know, you can't do that in many professions. But I think oncology. There's like these sort of special cancer dogs, aren't they? So uh, there, were, there were no um, there were no obstetric dogs. <laughs> They could have cleaned up the room afterwards, couldn't they? <laughs> they could have done. <laughs> I had um, one woman who wanted... Only one in uh, however many thousand babies I'd lived who insisted on eating the, the placenta. Uh, and I'd sort of... I'd, there wasn't any protocol in the, in the hospital for it. She said... Um, she called it placentophagia, which is uh, Greek for eating a placenta, uh, as if that makes it sound more like normal. Um, and I was like, oh, just, I, I don't want to know. Well, I'll speak to someone, I'll phone someone, but let's just resolve this crisis where your baby's heart rate's dropping. So I sort of delivered the baby, and then I was, um, I was pulling the, the placenta out, and I said, okay, fine, if you really want to. And I, I looked up, and she, was, she had a, like, a kidney dish in her hands, and she was shoveling blood clots into her mouth that I sort of that had come out during the, the delivery and I was like that's not the placenta and then she was sick everywhere you meant to you meant to cook it though aren't you? I mean if you, you eat the placenta I think you meant to cook it aren't you I, uh, clearly not for her she was sort of old school 
took the. It's uh, not much different, is it, than the blood clot and the placentas? Uh, yes, it is yeah, very no, different. No. Yeah. Just blood. It's a load of blood, isn't it? In terms of eating raw stuff that's come out of your pussy. Pussy. I don't know why I said pussy in that context. It seems very wrong. It's not, it's not yes. the term. It's not Again, a pussy when we do, we do birth, use Greek terms to avoid saying things like pussy. I was like going to say cunt and then I thought that was too cock. rude. I was going to say cunt and I censored myself and it was much worse what I said. <laughs> and so the lesson there is never censor yourself. Oh, you look like a perfect... Mm. <laughs> That's a lovely pussy you have there, madam. <laughs> Can I eat your placenta with you? I think you should fry it up. Is this it's one like of the questions? This is just my own mental breakdown. Do you get a lot of comedians asking you to uh, assess their genitalia for illness? Not for illness, no. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, you still get the thing uh, where you know, people ask you medical questions, yeah. that sort of... Uh, fine, a bit annoying. Generally, I just say, mm. uh, I've, sort of, I've not been a doctor for eight years, and during which time I've been predominantly drunk. And, uh, <laughs> but for things like um, fertility issues and, and, and pregnancy stuff, I'm more than happy to help. That's, that's sort of fine. Um, worse is now I work in scripted comedy being sent people's fucking scripts. <laughs> Man alive. Don't. And, um, but even worse, now I'm technically an author... These scripts are in like 30 pages long. People are sending me 400-page Word documents. <laughs> of course I'm not going to read that. How, how do you reply to that email? I just have a policy where I say I won't read anything that anyone sends me, which is, which is correct, because A, it's not our job, B, I can't really help anyone with anything. Uh, you can't get your own stuff made. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to print this up myself, mate. This is, I'm, this is just... I paid some Welsh blokes to hold a camera. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but that you know, it's, it's, it's you've got to just send really it to the right people. Yes, really bad bits. Fine, look at this. Mmm. Wow. And it's made by an art. It's made by an artisan. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Oh God, what time is it? I don't know what time it's and It feels like we've done enough. I don't, I'm not, don't want to tell you how to do your job, but uh, you know, they're certainly giving all the, the clues of... No, we're uh, gonna, it's the end of we're the We're going to push through. We used to do like an hour and a half with everyone, and then we started doing two in a night, and now it turns out to an hour. But the 90-minute ones were always much better, because it would hit this lull. awkward lull. Yeah, yeah. And then we'd dig our way out of it, and then <laughs> we'd find on the other side of the tunnel, a bit like The Great Escape. We weren't quite at the trees, but we, uh, we would create great comedy. Yeah, no, you've got a really nice audience. They are they're nice, very, aren't they? yeah. and they sort of they really they really oh, applauded no, the ham thing, didn't they? Yeah, they're they're they very loyal, they loyal, and also I throw them a few bones. You said day. human centipede, and they applauded as well. Fuck knows what that's about. <laughs> that sounded like a fun. Uh... <laughs> Did you actually interview the human centipede? No, no. I have an emergency question, which I can ask you. Yes, yes, yes. yes ask him, <laughs> ask him the disgusting question. And you deserve it. You are disgusting. Um, do you know what a human centipede is? You're aware of the film? I, I am. I once confused it with the very hungry caterpillar. Yes! <laughs> and, and I don't think my nephew's family have ever really forgiven me. But no, I, I, do, I definitely know what the human centipede so, is. The question is, I don't even have to read it off the page. I know it off by heart. Okay. That's how good it is. Um, oh, I can't remember now. If you, if you had to be in a human centipede and you're in the middle, but you get to choose who the other two participants are... Who would you have in front of you and who would you have behind you? Okay. And would so, one of them be delivering their placenta so into your mouth as well? Sort of uh, take, taking up the rear. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I'd like to excavate my bowels into the mouth of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yes. Good and, choice. And I'd like to stake my claim as being first in the line. Um, and if I'm going to be eating excreta, that yes, sort you of... Are. Uh, sort of, I'd want someone who has a very, I don't know what, you don't want it to be a meat-based diet, do you? I'd sort of have to interview on that basis. Maybe like one of these nut jobs who only eats fruit. It's like, because eating pineapple makes your semen taste of pineapple, doesn't it? I don't know if it makes your feces. I'm not a doctor, but I'm guessing not. Well, it's literally coming out (laughs) of there. So, uh, do you know that... uh, if you, uh, if you drink a lot of semen, yes. it makes your pineapple taste of semen. <laughs> um, 
that's uh, so I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go Gillian McKeith because she's probably very mindful of what she's ingesting and so we should talk about this and then this and then we will bring this uh, travesty <laughs> degloved penises at least I know what this episode's called already um you, um, lots of people have been. This is a genius idea of a book because basically half of your sales are people buying one to send to Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why it stayed in the. And you've actually, you did you get that he finally wanted to meet you to talk about it. Is that correct? He did, and and good for him. Loads of people, you know, were saying, "Can you sign a second book to uh, Jeremy Hunt?" Or something. Yeah, gladly. And eventually, he sent a, a letter to me via the publisher saying, "If you come and meet me, will people stop sending me this fucking book?" <laughs> And uh, so, so I, I, I met him, and I was, I mean, I was impressed. But he didn't have to meet me. It was a very big thing of him to do, and he was just a cunt. Uh, <laughs> he he did a sort of impression of someone displaying contrition and humanity. He said, you know, the June Doctor Crisis is one of the very saddest, most unfortunate things. It's the, one of the lowest points of his life and he really regrets what happened. And I said, oh, so what would you do differently if it happened again? He was like, oh, no, absolutely nothing. I think I handled it really well, so that's not what regret is. Um, and um, I asked him if he would ever take a job in a private healthcare company in the future? And he didn't answer the question. And, uh, and then he sort of started snapping at me, and then uh, the civil servant who was in the room started texting someone, and then someone came in and said, I think, Mr Hunt, your next person's here! And sort of got, uh, um, got, got, got dragged out of it. But, um, uh, and I, I felt... He, he said to me, this is an interrogation, this is not why I invited you in, I wanted a nice chat, you've been... You know, basically, you've been difficult, and I thought it would be nice. And <laughs> I thought and, you'd say, what a great job you're doing. Yeah. I'll take the book off I th- the shelves. I, I, I suspect that was what he wanted to happen. Yeah. And I said, I apologise if I came across nicer on paper <laughs> than I do in real life. And he said, oh no, I think you've been quite consistent. And that was that. <laughs> what a sassy little bitch. He could... Uh... He should just start selling the book out of his garage. He must have, like, a thousand copies of it. He could undercut you and... Uh... I suspect he doesn't need the money. Maybe. He sold, uh, he sold his company the money, for tens of millions. They don't the money, but they still keep taking it. That's what the Tories are all about. Uh, they keep going. Well, look, it's been terrific to talk to you. I, I cannot recommend your book enough, and I will not. Bless you. Thank you uh, so much. So... <laughs> <laughs> And you're on tour as well. With the, you're touring, touring the show based on the... Oh, inevitably, the yeah. And it's coming out in paperback? It's coming out in paperback and they're forcing me to go to places like Dorking and talk about it. But, uh, <laughs> and I dare say I've agreed. I, or was, someone I has. was in Dorking just the other day on my tour. Do come along. Uh, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive round of applause to Adam Kay. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Adam Kay. The music is by Pest, as usual. They come in every week to do it. I don't know. It's nice of them. Uh, All right, guys. Yeah. Uh, Is there no way we could just record this and just play it under the bed? No? Okay, we have to do it live. Fair. Thanks. Do you want to improvise a bit? No, leaving it as it is. That's fine. That's good, that's good to see. Uh, the, uh, thank you very much to everyone at the Left Square Theatre for having us along. I believe they get some money from it. I don't think it's out of an altruistic desire to help us. Uh, thank you to everyone at Go Past the Strike. And thank you to everyone at the British Comedy Guide. And let's thank Ian Tunes. He doesn't get paid enough. Uh, and uh, my producer is Ben Walker. This is a Sky Potato, Go Past the Strike and Fuzz production. And goes on the internet. Come and see me on tour. Retrain.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. RichardHerring.com slash gigs. GoFasterStripe.com for all my books, downloads, all that sort of shizzle. Oh, yeah, I know all the cool words. And um, would love to see you on the, on the Can I Have My Ball Back tour if you can make it. Bye. <laughs>